Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. It all started as a small protest in remote British Columbia against a natural gas pipeline. But the construction blockade on Wet'suwet'en traditional territory inspired rail blockades across Canada, effectively shutting down freight transportation on one of Canada's two railroads for more than two weeks. Then, Tech Resources pulled the plug on a $20 billion oil sands mine in Alberta. I'm Emily Jackson, and you're listening to Down to Business. This week, we'll discuss how the rail blockades are connected to Tech's decision not to build the mine and what it means for Canada's reputation with investors. Joining us is my colleague, Financial Post reporter Gabe Friedman, who covers resources and mining. We spoke on Monday as police confronted protesters to take down a rail blockade in Ontario. Gabe, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So I want to talk about the port of Halifax. It's about 6,000 kilometers away from the Wet'suwet'en traditional territory in BC, which is the site of the first protest of the proposed coastal gas link pipeline. What's going on at this East Coast port? So to me, this is, I think, the most interesting part of this story. It's, it's I think if you weren't paying attention, there have been a lot of protests of pipelines and, and you might have missed this and then sort of woken up one day and said, whoa, parts of the whole country economy are, are shut down. And it's really, in a way, it's, I think, a David and Goliath story, how a really small group of people in BC were able to basically paralyze the rail line so far away. And I think it's going to have big implications going forward for for the country's economy and how protesters think about their actions. But in a, in a really nutshell, they inspired a bunch of other protests and it it, it turned into a sort of movement that blocked our country's rail for most of Eastern Canada. This rail blockage part, the, the one that really became that choke point was the one about 200 kilometers east of Toronto, a two-hour drive in the Tyendinaga Mohawk Territory, where people set up a protest along CN's rail tracks. CN says this is too close for comfort. They can't put the freight trains through. What has that blockade, what has that meant for the folks working at the port in Halifax? Right. So, in Halifax, although that's still about 1,600 kilometers away from Halifax, so nowhere near there, they said the rail car slowly but surely started stopped coming into Halifax. And if you look on a map, by virtue of its sort of geography, Halifax is really far out into the Atlantic. That's just the way the East Coast is situated. So they've sort of built this strategy that we're so far out into the coast, if you're on a ship and you want to get something to the heartland, if you want to get something to Chicago in the US or anywhere in the center of the continent, a ship can dock, make call at Port of Halifax, and they can get that cargo onto a rail before that ship could get to Baltimore or New York or Philadelphia or any other port on the East Coast. And so they have this time-sensitive competitive advantage. Right. So they pitch themselves as, if you ship to Halifax, this is going to be faster to get this product where you want to go. Exactly. Exactly right. But that's not working right now as it stands. Some of their customers have even said, we might you know, shift to ports elsewhere might look down the East Coast, down to more American ports. What's the implication for that about Canada's reputation as a reliable shipper of goods? 
this is the question that everyone's asking themselves. So some, some, uh, one sh at least one company based in New Jersey has already started doing that. They said, we've already diverted a couple ships. Um, they haven't said what ports, but they've passed by uh, the port of Halifax. And of course, if you are at the port of Halifax, this is of deep concern to you. I was speaking to Kevin Piper, who's the president of, basically there's a couple unions there and he represents them. And he, th there's been a huge push in Nova Scotia to really get the economy growing. And the port has been a central part of that. And so when you see someone like ACL, which is the name of the shipping company that started diverting ships, and you hear other companies thinking about doing it too, it, it, it concerns them a lot because they've even staked their pensions on the strategy of we can be first. And there's this idea that not so much that people's attitudes about Canada may not change immediately. But once they start diverting to another port, that gives those other ports an opportunity to sort of market themselves and show what their strengths are. And so you never want your customers leaving. So I think that's the fear. So that's what's happening out in Halifax, as you painted it. Kind of this David and Goliath story. This started in the Wet'suwet'en territory, so far away from this. This protest was originally about the coastal gas link pipeline going through this territory in BC. Now we've had a rails blockage for about two and a half weeks. Um, this is a fluid situation. On Monday, the Ontario Provincial Police moved in to try to take down one of that sort of choke point blockade near Belleville, Ontario. There's some economic impact for that. It has yet to be calculated. But when CN Rail workers went on strike last November for about eight days, that ca cost Canada's GDP about a tenth of a percentage point. What's the expected fallout from this particular situation? Well, it's interesting, right? It's what happened was in November, there was a rail strike for, like you said, eight days. And if you talk to economists about that, they say, I don't know exactly what it is. But two economists told me they thought it was less than one tenth of a percentage point. Because when you look at the overall impact of rail, it's relatively small. I think it's, I think what they told me is a half a percentage point of Canada's GDP, which isn't, doesn't sound that big. I mean, of course, that's still hundreds of millions of dollars, whatever it is. But the 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 thing about rail is that if you stop rail for short periods, it doesn't necessarily have that big of an impact. Like some of the impact from November has already shown up in December. We bounced back and we got some of that GDP back. But there are these intangible questions like you asked me about, does it damage our reputation? Are customers going to stop coming back? And at a micro level, I think there may well be some smaller businesses that are very dependent on rail traffic that are much more severely hurt by any kind of stoppage like this. So it's that micro impacts, but it more adds to that overall question of can Canada's infrastructure move forward? Yeah, that broader question of, you know, how are we viewed in the world? Do people view us as a place where they want to come? And, and so there is that macro impact as well. When it comes to that macro impact, these blockades have drawn attention to a political problem for the federal liberal government, which has been trying to balance natural resource projects with indigenous land rights and at the same time take action on climate change. So this this whole thing, this whole conversation kind of came to a head with tech deciding to sort of cancel its application to build a $20 billion oil sands project. Tell me about what happened there. Yeah, that's a great question. And it's, I think, pretty closely connected. This morning, Don Lindsay, who's the CEO of tech, was speaking at a conference in Florida. And he started off by saying, we're the biggest rail customer in Canada. And so we've been really severely affected by these rail blockades. And he said, I know outside Canada, you may not have heard of this, but it's had a big impact on us. And so they've had to cut back on some of their coal production. Of course, 
it's all intertwined with a lot of other things. Coronavirus has also impacted them. And they're sort of trying to think about what to do with Frontier, which is the largest oil sands mine in history. It's proposed right now. And last night they said they're going to withdraw it. They basically saved Prime Minister Justin Trudeau from having to make what could have been a really politically polarizing decision. Because if they allowed the biggest mine you know, to be built in the oil sands today, you could easily imagine that that would inspire more protests like what the Wet'suwet'en uh, protest um, inspired. On the other hand, if they rejected it, I think the uh, people and the government of Alberta would also be up in arms because it had a big impact. So tech sort of took that off the shelf and said, not that they're canceling the project forever, but that they're putting it down for now. Now's not the right time. Now's not the right time. In this letter that Don Lindsay wrote to the environment minister, he said that the promise of Canada's potential will not be realized until governments can reach agreement around how climate policy considerations will be addressed in the context of future responsible energy sector development. So he said, without clarity on that frontier, just can't go forward. What do you make of that statement, that accusation that part of the reason they pulled this from the shelf right now is because there isn't that framework that reconciles the energy development along with climate change? It's uh, it's a great question. I, I thought about that too when I read it. And I took it as him, this is him calling out all of our political leaders. I mean, if you read the whole letter, he talks about a lot of things in there. And a lot of it's sort of, you have to sift through and say, what does he mean here? I mean, at one part further down in the line, he says, we're supportive of carbon action and carbon pricing and taking action on climate change. And on the other, he says, there's no clear path forward. And so I think he was sort of calling out leaders for not doing more to resolve some of these blockades that have paralyzed and crippled our railroad system and hurt our economy. I think he was saying to the political leaders of all parties, stop squabbling over climate change. We're one of the biggest emitters probably in Canada, and we support carbon taxing and carbon pricing. So like, let's agree on a policy and let's move forward. And I think that Canada has a lot of work to do on that front. It's really interesting to see CEOs of these resource extraction companies take that position. You know, hey guys, we're willing to put in the work here. It just help us out a little bit here. When it comes to this frontier project in general, one of the arguments has been that projects like this are needed as Canada transitions away from oil and gas potentially in the future, um, that Canada's oil and gas is a better bet than continuing to use coal going forward or what have you. What do you make of that dance that energy companies are trying to do as they try to pitch these projects in that environmentally sensitive way? Yeah, it's one of those debates that that kind of seems to really still be happening right now in real time where it, it makes a lot of sense. What, what tech's sort of pitch for this has been is that it's going to be the most ethical you know, oil because we're not using child labor. We're not using forced labor. We're doing it in a way that's more environmentally sensitive than maybe some other parts of the world. Or it could be, you know, if we get these this oil up online, it could maybe mean that we take some coal offline uh, somewhere else in the world. And I think one of the things they pointed out is that it has lower greenhouse gas emissions per barrel than other North American crude where they'd be selling into. And I think in a very real level that if you care about climate change, you have to think about overall emissions because it's not like it stops at our border. On the other hand, if you're a climate activist, I think they're the, the sort of people who are a lot of times setting policy on this have made progress by demanding cuts 
because sometimes some of the sort of policies that reduce greenhouse gas emissions are just almost fictional. They're, they're constructs that we've created on paper, but at the end of the day, emissions keep growing year every year. And so I think policy leaders, probably companies, government, they're all struggling with sort of how, how do we think about this when we could reduce as much we could reduce all our greenhouse gas emissions tomorrow. And it wouldn't make that much difference because China and the US and Europe pollute so much more than we do. One of the other things behind this particular project, though, is the economics. I don't think we can forget that either. Even last week, Tech was speaking about how there's a good business case for Frontier if the Trans Mountain Pipeline gets built. And that's another pipeline project from Alberta to BC, one that also has faced a lot of opposition so far through the courts. Certainly, people can expect that opposition to continue should construction get started on this in a really earnest way. I'm wondering, how do you think this pipeline opposition and potentially the expectation of more blockades factored into Tech's decision to put this on pause. Right. Yeah. Technically, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which is the pipeline that Tech said would need to be built for them to consider, had been saying they'd need to see if that pipeline gets built, not built a little bit, but built all the way. And that would sort of determine some of the economics of this project. Technically, they're not responsible for it. The government is. But I think they're definitely considering sort of what the odds are that it gets built. And right now, I think as we stand here today, it's not looking so good when you think about all the blockades. And this morning, there were police clearing off the blockade in Ontario. And there was some footage postage on Twitter. And it was the kind of thing that you could see sort of easily spreading and creating new blockades all over. And so I, I think I spoke to an analyst this morning about this, and he framed it more as the decision to withdraw Frontier by tech to not build this large oil sands mine project was maybe just a question of timing, that right now is not the right time. We don't have the pipeline, oil prices aren't right. The economics don't look that great right now in terms of other oil, tech would need another partner to build this. And there aren't too many companies chomping at the bit to build an oil sands project or really any oil project right now at the moment. And so- Is that a factor of oil prices? I mean, obviously, when this project was was first proposed in 2011, it was a whole different world when it came to oil prices. But is it just about that or is it also about building in Canada particularly? Yeah, I think it's both, right? I think in 2011, they were looking at $95 per barrel for oil. Today, we're at about half that. And on Friday, when Tech did their fourth quarter earnings, they marked down the value by about a billion dollars of their existing oil sands assets. And they said that's because of declining expectations of future oil prices. But I, I think there is also a very real concern about pipeline capacity and whether it makes sense to put, if you had $20 billion, would you want to put it into this? You know, $20 billion is a lot of money, and that's how much it would cost to build this. And so there might be better returns in, in other asset classes. In your reporting, are you seeing other projects like this, you know, other investors kind of turning their heads away from Canada or being a bit more lukewarm about investing big dollars in Canada? Yeah, it's certainly an issue. Canada, when you hear people talk about Canada, when I hear investors talk about Canada as a place to build, you do sometimes hear that 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 it's getting hard. You hear that a lot, actually, that it's getting harder and harder to build. In fact, you know, the government recently passed Bill C-69 and created a whole new environmental act. And it seems like one of the core elements of it is that it, it recognizes that there's going to be opposition to every project. And so it makes you identify issues up front. And it's sort of premised on this idea that like, there's always going to be people opposing. These things are likely going to be slowed down by litigation. And so let's get that out of the way. Let's get people to 
pin them down and say, this is what the potential problems are from this project right away so that we don't have another situation like the Trans Mountain Pipeline where it was like more than a dozen lawsuits in years. Now, whether or not that works is anyone's guess. I mean, there's a lot of people who are skeptical. But but also, there are still things, on the other hand, getting built. And there are, all still, there are still new projects being proposed. I mean, Frontier was a new project that was being proposed until yesterday. But there is a, a potential iron ore project, um, not a mine, but a, a type of intermediary iron ore refinery that is being proposed in the Maritimes. And there was a new gold mine recently built in Ontario. So there are still projects, but I think for sure it is a definite challenge today. When it comes to the opposition that the government itself expects to be just entrenched going forward. A lot of this has the conversation surrounds pipelines and these natural gas projects or oil sands projects. But the current blockades that we're seeing aren't just about a pipeline now. They're also about Indigenous land rights. The Wet'suwet'en territory was never officially ceded to the government of Canada, but then you have different groups within the nation that either support or oppose the pipeline project. And there's this larger question about whether companies are supposed to consult hereditary chiefs or elected band councils and who has the final say. There, there can be just this overlap between these groups and there can be overlap between issues when we're talking about this. What lessons do you think companies can take from this current blockade situation? I mean, it's such a great question. And it's one of these questions that I think really needs, really, it's difficult to answer on a, on a wider basis. But clearly, you are seeing a lot more attention, I find, from resource companies that want to build big projects to what they call the social license, that no matter where you go in the world, these days, they say you have to pay attention to social license, whether it's in Canada or Africa. There's going to be a community or, you know, if it's in Latin America, you know, there are taxes that need to be paid to the government. And I think in Canada, there's an increasing awareness that there are these indigenous communities out there that have growing political clout. Investors want to see companies that are more responsive to the communities where they operate. And so I think you are going to see a lot more companies focusing on the social license. And you already are. One more question for you. These blockades that we have right now, it might not on the face of it seem super connected to to these larger projects getting built. But I'm wondering if you could just kind of summarize for us why this rail blockade and these stoppages are being tied so closely to tech's decision to uh, hold back on its really big project. I think they are definitely connected, right? I think people are tying these to the extent that people see these as related. I think we're in a period right now where you've just seen a lot of protests in Canada, across Canada, of new projects. I mean, the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, there were there was there was a lot of people concerned about frontier. And so I think people are sort of grouping these together as there are, there is increasingly this conflict that companies face like tech, where on the one hand, it's it's producing copper, which is a, ba a metal that is considered very important to going clean in the world. And then on the other you, hand, you have them producing steel making coal and bitumen. And so they are this greenhouse gas emitter and Investors are increasingly crying for more action on climate change, and they're trying to respond to that. 
But at the same time, they're sort of battling these operational issues like rail blockades, which are making it harder for them to transition or achieve profits so they can invest in new innovations. And so I, I think these issues are all sort of tied up together and there isn't a real clear distinction between any of them. Sounds like that framework Don Lindsay wants isn't a terrible idea. That's right. I think so, totally. Gabe, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot, Emily. That was Financial Post reporter Gabe Friedman. You can check out Gabe's reporting on the economic impact of the rail blockades and tech's frontier mine decision at financialpost.com. Thank you so much for listening to Down to Business. And thank you, as always, to the Down to Business team. Music and production by Bryce Hall and editing by Yudula Hussain. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it with a friend and rate us on your podcast app. I'm Emily Jackson, and until next week, you can get all your business news at financialpost.com.